This morning we're going to continue our look uh, at the story of the Exodus, which is this uh, foundational story uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, as I was uh, thinking about the Exodus story uh, this week, I thought about the, the story of Adnan Syed. Uh, if you don't know his story, he was serving a life sentence uh, for uh, a crime that he claims that, that he didn't commit, but he was convicted of it because uh, he had a terrible defense attorney, nobody that would really uh, defend him. And so he's in prison uh, serving a life sentence and says he'd really come to peace with the fact that, uh, that he was going to serve out this life sentence for a crime that he didn't commit. And then all of a sudden, uh, a woman named Sarah Koenig calls him and says, I want to do a podcast about your story. And probably he didn't know what a podcast was, because nobody knew what a podcast was, even uh, not that long ago. Uh, But she came, of course, did a podcast uh, about his life. That podcast was was created, uh, became instantly and wildly popular, called The Serial Podcast. And then all of a sudden, this this man uh, had more people defending him than he could even count because so many had been brought into his story. I think eventually in 2016, his conviction was even overturned, all because somebody was willing uh, to come to his defense. Well, our passage this morning talks about God coming to the defense of just uh, just as much of a helpless and a hopeless case as that one was. And so the chapter we're going to read uh, within this story is the, the Passover chapter. Um, and so I'm going to be reading from Exodus chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 to 14. You can follow along in your copy of God's Word in the bulletin uh, or on the screens as well. This is God's Word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb." Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, And your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. 
The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks for this powerful Exodus story and what it teaches us about the rescue that comes from your hand. So, Father, I pray that as we contemplate this story that took place thousands of years ago, Lord, we would be mindful of the ways that you have rescued each and every one of our hearts. So I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that we might see your gospel clearly and be refreshed and renewed by your grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So this, this passage takes place within the Exodus story, and as we've looked at that, uh, the Exodus story, we continue to discover that, that this story is uh, incredibly revelatory about uh, the character and the personality of the God of the Scriptures. Sometimes it's hard for us to remember, but, but we, you and I, we have really the benefit of knowing the fuller story about God because we have the completed scriptures right in front of us. But for God's people in the story of Exodus, uh, they had very, very little information uh, to go on. As we saw last week, God had been silent for probably about 400 years before uh, the Exodus event. So, so God's people didn't have a whole lot of information to go on. They'd probably heard stories passed down from their great-great-grandparents. They'd heard a little bit of rumors or, or uh, a little bit of information. But by and large, they didn't have a lot of information to go on when it came to the God that they were worshiping. But now, in this story, God begins to gradually reveal to them his character, and he does it in some of the most powerful ways. And of course, we know that even after this story, God continues to to progressively reveal his character all throughout the story of redemption, all throughout redemptive history. Uh, whenever I kind of explain the process of redemption, I like to think about uh, uh, um, ba- think back to my dating life, and this, of course, is 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 wonderfully appropriate for Valentine's Day, right? We just celebrated Valentine's Day, so so think back to the time where you had that first date, right, with someone, and uh, you didn't know very much about them, so you got together, uh, you went to a restaurant. And what you did at that date is you gradually began to reveal certain things about yourself within the conversation, right? And often what we do on first dates is we reveal the best things about us on those first dates, right? We share the information we think would be endearing to the person we're sitting with at the table. And we wait till later on to tell them maybe some of the things that are a little less flattering about ourselves. We certainly don't sit down at that first date and say, I just need to tell you at the very beginning that my feet stink, that I have bad morning breath, and I have all these different nasty habits, right? We don't do that at all. We share the best about us, and then progressively that person learns more about us. And I often think about that funny story when I think about, uh, about God and about the way he reveals himself to us. Because that, in many ways, is what God is doing with his people in this passage. 
He's gradually opening the curtains more and more about who he is and about what his character is really all about. And so when we come to this passage, I think what becomes crystal clear to us is two specific things about the character of God. We see it as we look at this passage later on, and God's people in this moment were seeing it very clearly. And I think the two things that they see very clearly is, one, the judgment of God, and two, the special grace and love of God. Now, initially, you and I think these two things are mutually exclusive, that how can can judgment and love be in the same place? But in the story of redemption, what we see is that both equally and powerfully come to fruition. So first, what I'd like to do is just take a look at the judgment of God or to take a look at a God of judgment that we see in this passage. And let's be honest at the outright, the thought of God as a God of judgment is is not a commonly taught doctrine, at least in American Christianity. And part of that, I understand, it seems uh, offensive to our modern sensibilities, But I really believe that deep down, we all actually want a God who acts in the face of evil and oppression. I think it's one of those deepest desires that that manifest itself uh, in our hearts day in and day out. And certainly the idea of God as a God of judgment is crystal clear all throughout the scriptures. If you were with us last week, we looked at Moses. And we looked at how Moses was certainly an unlikely rescuer. He had all sorts of interesting things about his past. But what we saw is that God put a special call on his life. God called him to lead the Israelite people out of their Egyptian enslavement. We know that enslavement was particularly harsh and rigorous for them. And so uh, Moses, with his brother Aaron, probably full of all sorts of fear and trepidation, uh, they return back to Egypt and they manage uh, to gain an audience with Pharaoh. Now we know a little bit about Pharaoh from the scriptures and of course from history as well because most likely he was the most powerful figure in the ancient world at this time. He certainly ruled uh, one of the most powerful kingdoms, Um, And he sat on top of the the Egyptian religion as well. And what that means is the Egyptians believed in a pantheon of gods, lots of different gods often associated with nature. But what they also believed is that the Pharaoh himself had godlike characteristics as well. He had the qualities of the deities to him as well. And so what the scriptures paint for us is really a false god standing on top of a false religion. And what we learn very quickly is that because of that, he ruled with a certain bloodthirsty arrogance to him. He, of course, had set himself up as a god. But in our passage, in the story of Exodus, he gets confronted. He encounters the real and true living God, a powerful God. And so throughout Exodus chapters 7 to 12, what Pharaoh does is he he continually refuses to let the people of God go despite all of the warnings that come from the hands of Moses and Aaron. 
And so because he refused to let God's people go, he progressively experiences the judgment of God, not just for him, but for his kingdom as well. And if you've ever read the story before, you know that they come in the form of ten plagues, okay? Now, maybe you've heard the story of the ten plagues before, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to think through them with fresh eyes and a fresh imagination for a second. Imagine what it had been like to be a resident of Egypt at that time. The first plague had to do with the Nile River. You read about it in Exodus chapter 7. Moses places his staff in the Nile River, which was the source of life and abundance for the Egyptian people. And the scriptures say this, the Nile turned into blood and the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout the land. Okay. And for, for seven days, for seven days, the Nile was filled with blood and yet Pharaoh would not relent. He would not do what Moses asked. So then plague number two were the frogs. It says in chapter 8, verse 3, The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come into your houses and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. Okay, so frogs, frogs everywhere, everywhere you're turned. And yet Pharaoh refused. Right? The book of Exodus says they pulled out all the, the carcasses of the frogs and they made big piles in the streets of all the frog carcasses. Pleasant thought, right? Well, it continues. Plague number three were the gnats. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. After that was plague number four. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. There were flies that came from all over. Now, what's interesting about this plague is for the first time, Exodus mentions that the nation of Israel was becoming exempt from the plagues. And so what the author is doing is he's creating a distinction between what is happening to the Egyptians and what is happening to the people of Israel as well. Plague number five was the death of livestock. All the livestock of Egypt died, but not one of the livestock of Israel died. There's that distinction again. Uh, Plague number six, boils developed on man and beast. And still, Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And what's interesting about this plague is before it said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. By plague number six, it starts to say that God was now hardening Pharaoh's heart. Plague number seven was the plague of hail. Thunder, hail, and fire rained down upon the earth. It says this, The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. That must have been pretty big hail. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. After that was plague eight. The locust, swarms of locusts, covered the land and destroyed whatever agriculture remained. It says that the locust ate every plant of the land and all the hail and all that the hail had left. So think about this for a second. In ancient societies, 
civilizations really thrived on three things. They thrived on livestock, they thrived on agriculture, and all of that uh, depended on proximity to water. It was all sustained by water. And so what you, what you are learning throughout these plagues is that the entire Egyptian economy and culture, which was built on all of these things, is, was slowly being dismantled. God is systematically destroying all of it, all the while protecting his own people, the Israelites. Plague number nine was darkness. Darkness covered the land for three days. Uh, this most certainly was an affront to the Egyptian sun god, Ra, right? This is God saying, you think that God is powerful, I'm going to give you darkness for three straight days. And still Pharaoh, in his arrogant obstinance, refused to let God's people go. And then comes the tenth plague, which is really the climactic plague of them all, and that is the death of the firstborn. It says in chapter 12, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, to the firstborn of the livestock. And there was a great cry in Egypt. Pharaoh, after this, he finally relents and he lets the people go. He says they are free to go. And so, like I mentioned before, American Christianity tends uh, to have a hard time with a judgmental God. And so we come to, to passages like these plagues. It makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable because we assume that judgment and love are two concepts that are mutually exclusive. But what we see is that the character of God tells us that those things are not exclusive, but they are complementary, that both exist in the perfect character of God. But if this passage tells us anything, it tells us this, that that the object of God's judgment tends to always be arrogance and hubris. God's judgment is for those who act like their own gods. Now think about Pharaoh for a second. Pharaoh's arrogance led to all sorts of things. It led to uh, oppressive enslavement. It led to population control at one point. It certainly led to a, a very hardened and bitter heart. And all of that was because he refused to humble himself in the face of God, no matter how powerful and how mighty that God was. He refused to humble himself, and because of that, His kingdom was systematically dismantled piece by piece throughout the plagues. Now, you and I may not be involved in oppressive enslavement or population control. At least I hope none of us really are. But we have to come to terms with with this fact, that our hearts also tend toward arrogance, toward pride, and toward hubris. In fact, sin, this idea of sin, fundamentally is our attempt to be our own gods, to to rebel against God's law, against his design, and against God's will for our lives. So in some ways, we all are like Pharaoh in this story. Our sin, our pride, it hardens our hearts. And so because of that, 
We, you and I, deserve the same judgment that Pharaoh received in this story. And that judgment, make no mistake, is coming one day. The scriptures guarantee that. In fact, if you ever have a free moment, compare the plagues that you read in the book of Exodus to some of the material that you read in the book of Revelation at the end of the scriptures. There's so many different parallels. And what it reminds us is that God will at one point come to judge the arrogant and the prideful. He will come to judge those who refuse to humble themselves. But thankfully, that's not all that we see in this passage. Thankfully, what we also see is this. We see the special grace and the love of God on display. See, the nation of Israel in that last plague was given very specific and special instructions on how they could be protected. They were to take a a lamb that was spotless, a lamb uh, without blemish. They were to slaughter that lamb and take the blood that came from that lamb and put it on the lintel, put it on the doorposts of their home. And their obedience to that instruction from Moses was evidence of their faith in God that he would deliver them. And so when the angel of death came through the land at twilight or at midnight, The blood from that lamb would signal the faith of the Israelite who lived in that home. The blood of a perfect sacrifice would save them from judgment and death. Now, one of the things that you have to be very careful with when you come to this narrative is this. It's easy for us to think that the Egyptians were the only people that were evil in this story. And the Israelites were the good characters, that they were the good ones. But if you read anything more about their history, you'll realize that they were far from true and that they were far from good, right? All you have to do is read a little farther in the story and you discover that. In many ways, they were just as wicked as the Egyptians. And that is exactly why in this chapter of the story, the blood was necessary because a blood sacrifice needed to be made to cover over their sin. You see, a sacrifice needed to be made for Israel to be rescued, for Israel to be in a relationship with God. And so God defended Israel not because they were any better than the Egyptians. He didn't defend them because they were somehow more righteous He defended them because he had chosen them to be objects of his special grace, which were made possible through a blood sacrifice. Uh, Two weeks ago, my wife called me and she said, you'll never believe this interesting conversation I had with one of your children in the car the other day. And so I gulp when I ever hear that, that kind of lead into a discussion. So she said she looked back and saw one of the kids were kind of deep in thought. And, and, and she inquired, oh, you look deep in thought. What's going on? What are you wondering about? And this child said, Mom, uh, you know how Mary was uh, the mother of Jesus? She said, yeah, Mary was the mother of Jesus. She said, and you know how Jesus is called the Lamb of God? She said, well, yeah, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. Well, then doesn't that mean that Mary had a little lamb? 
And she said, well, yes, certainly. I guess it does mean that very thing. You see, for the Jews, the story of the ten plagues is called the Passover event. And what we learn is it is remembered and celebrated for thousands and thousands of years and continues to be remembered and celebrated for thousands and, th- and will be for thousands of years to come. In fact, the night, what the scriptures tell us, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he, a, a good Jew himself, gathered with his friends to celebrate the Passover meal. But what we quickly discover is that little did Jesus' friends know that at that meal, Jesus himself was about to be the lamb. He was the perfect sacrifice whose blood would be shed. You see, God may have taken Pharaoh's firstborn children in judgment. But what the gospel story reminds us is this, that he was also willing to offer his very own firstborn son to satisfy the wrath and judgment for those whom he chose to become objects of his grace and his love and his mercy. You see, friends, through faith, you and I can be saved from that judgment. We can be delivered from death. Through faith, we we no longer need to fear being an object of the wrath of God because that is exactly what you and I deserve. Instead, we become objects of His special grace. You see, His blood covers over the Pharaoh's heart that is in all of us. Not because we are righteous, but because we have been chosen to be objects of His special grace. Let's pray.